Hi, Tuesday morning. Let me see if I can do this in the little scoop of time I have here. I'll try to hop around. Uh, I saw this week a lot of famous uh, yard sites, but the one the one cost my um, attracted my attention is uh, today, I think, or yesterday is Alvin Benarambam, which is very interesting. One of the most, uh, I should say, one of the least understood Roshonim, in my opinion. Very, very interesting person. Avram ben Arambam. Obviously, this is the son of the Rambam. Uh, who lived mainly in the early 1200s. And he didn't live long. Here's a... So this is the son of the Rambam. The Rambam, as far as we know, had one kid, possibly two. Uh, it's a strange story. I've never totally worked this out. Uh, no one has. Uh, the Rambam, Moses Maimonides, who lived in the 1100s primarily, you know... Uh, probably most of you know, was born in Spain, but then at a young age, uh, the ISIS took over in Spain, the Almohads, they called that day, and became possibly Jewish, and that began the adventures of the difficult life of the Rambam, and he didn't escape from that part of the world to Egypt until he was like in his late 20s. And it seems, the best I can tell, that when the Rambam moved to Egypt, and before that, he had to pretend to be a Muslim. So now that he's in Egypt, he could come out of closet to be Jewish. So around that time, he got married. So that would mean the Rambam was approximately 30 years old, something like that, when he got married. Um, now, I don't know what happened to his wife exactly. And I, uh, and we don't know anything about kids. There's a possibility he might have a daughter. It's not clear. Some sources say, yeah, some not. But he didn't have any other kids. Um... When the Rambam was 51 years old, he had a kid. And that's Avram ben Rambam. So he had one son, as far as we know, one child, which is a strange business. I mean, was that the first wife he married? Did he marry a second wife? His first wife died? I don't know. You know, and when you get to the history department, sometimes these things are not 100% clear. All we're left is with is this, that when the Rambam was over 50 years old, when he was 51 years old, he had a son, the only child. And this is Avram ben Rambam. And uh, that means that this son of Ben Zakunim, you know. Uh, now, it's not so crazy. I mean, you know, frankly, my father was over 50, I don't know, 51, 52, 53 when I was born. But then again, I come from a second marriage after the Holocaust. So in my time, that's a different story. A lot of people got remarried after they lost their families. Uh, what happened with the Rambam in the 1100s? I don't know. Nobody knows. All we know is that he had uh, an only uh, child. And you can just imagine... I mean, you tell me what the emotion when you figure you're not going to have any kids and then at 51 you have a son. And uh, this was, became Alvin ben Rambam. And that means when the Rambam died when he was 69 years old, so this son was 18 when the father died. That's who Alvin ben Rambam is. Um, you know, so he grew up as a teenager, you might say, up to the age of 18 with his uh, father. That's just a very interesting kind of story, you know. And you can imagine, uh, in fact, you don't have to imagine we have a letter from the Rambam to a friend who says that this boy got sick at one point, and for three days it looked like he might die. Look, what was the medicine at that time? You know, didn't have amoxicillin or anything like that at all. So uh, the Rambam went out of his calum, which you could just imagine. I mean, you could make a movie out of that. Don't tell me now, finally, at the end, to have one child, and then this child's going to perish. That was too, it'd be too terrible a blow, you know. But the boy recovered. Uh, but the Rambam says he was like on the verge of a nervous breakdown or something like that, which you can totally understand which you could totally understand. So, uh, but the boy survived. And um, 
This boy therefore grows up in his formative years. We know nothing about the mother, I repeat, you know. Uh, in his formative years, uh, <laughs> learning by Maimonides. Not the Maimonides school in Boston or these places. By Moses Maimonides. He was trained by his father. Now, it turned out that he was a genius. So, that was great. And we have a letter from the Rambam somewhere to a friend where he says, my son is, a, is a fantastic. Listen closely what the Rambam says. He said, my son is a perfect. Why? He's a genius, but he's very uh, 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 modest and good character about it. You wouldn't know it. He says, he's humble. He's a genius, but he's humble. That's like the perfect from the Muslim perspective. You know, every father wants a kid like that. Good midos, meaning he was a nice guy. He didn't flaunt it or anything like that, but he was a genius. <laughs> very Maimonidean. Um, and it's not surprising. The Rambam is Mr. Midos, among other things. Among other things. You read the Hilkas, Deus, and all that. And it's just very interesting from a historical perspective because that means that at the time he was born, if the father was 50, at that time the Rambam was in the last part of his life, and was frankly, he was mainly an MD. Now, he was a big learner, obviously, and he gave a sheer once in a while, at least based on what he writes, he didn't have time because his practice, the Rambam's practice, took off like crazy, and he had this A-list of VIP uh, patients and all this kind of stuff. So he was at the peak of his uh, medical years, the Rambam, his years of writing Jewish literature were behind him. The famous things he wrote in Judaism about the Pirish Lamishnayas and the Mishnah Torah and the Mordechai were the Rambam wrote in his 20s, his 30s, and his 40s. So the boy was born when the Rambam was in his 50s. So, uh, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm a historian, so you like to get the chronological aspect of this. So the boy's growing up when the father is no longer writing his great works of Torah stuff, but rather the father is writing his great works of medicine, of science. This is the years when the Rambam wrote his famous medical books, which became very uh, authoritative and popular at that time, you know, in the 13th century, 14th century, not today. Um, and it's just interesting you have such a son. And so obviously, trained by such a father, and I don't know what the schedule was, because when did he have time to learn with his son? But you could be doggone sure, somebody like the Rambam, a guy like that, will set aside time, you know, to closely supervise his son's education, particularly since the son is a Barhaki and a genius. So all this is just very interesting. not your typical situation of... Uh, most Rishonim don't have a father who's a famous doctor, you know, famous scientist, philosopher, in addition to being a, a, a gaon. And so Du Bois is, is, a, is an excellent, uh, in, as we say today, Hebrew education and, and secular education. He really was that model of the brain surgeon who can give a daf yomi, you know, that kind of thing. But he was only 18 when the father died. Now, he must have been very mature, and which is not surprising at all. You have a father like the Rambam, you're not going to the football game, you know. He's a, a very mature and very wise. Because when the Rambam died and the boy was 18, he succeeded to his posts. The king, uh, the sultan in Egypt, uh, appointed him to be his doctor at the age of 18. That's, that's crazy. And the Jewish community, because the sultan liked him, appointed him to succeed the Rambam as Nagid as the boss of, the, of Jewish affairs in, in Egypt, the Av Bezdin, uh, at the age of 18. You understand? So here's somebody who assumes the full mantle at the age of 18. The Rambam didn't become the Rambam at the age of 18. <laughs> the Rambam didn't get to Egypt until he was like 29, 30. But the son took over the position of the Rambam and fulfilled it with great eminence. And so here's somebody who will be the big posik, like the Rambam was, in Egypt and outside. He being the big, you know, run the basins every day, and uh, you know, a and all the shallows and all that kind of thing. 
which is a lot. There are shalos and tshuvas. I don't have it in front of me. I have it somewhere in my library that they uh, uh, published. A, I think it's called Birchus Avram, something like that. The response to the shalos and tshuvas that Avram and Rambam used to get from around the Middle East and places like that, even from France, on questions about the Gemara and also questions about the Mishnah Torah. Because if you want to know what the Rambam meant, who are you going to get better than that than the Rambam's son? You know, right? And so uh, he will be the Rosh Hashiva, the Rav, and all that. At the same time, he'll also be the great MD. And uh, one of the big things we know is Cairo, let me put it this way, at the time he was there, uh, Egypt and Syria was like the headquarters of science of that era, of the 13th century. And particularly in medicine, and in Cairo, in Damascus, in Cairo, where they lived, was one of the, uh, maybe the number one hospital in the world, or one of the most famous hospitals. Yeah, there's no reason you should know. This is the history of medicine in the Middle Ages, and the Arab medicine. And uh, he was the, uh, what should I say, the chief physician in the hospital. Actually not. There was an Arab guy who was the chief physician, a Muslim, but he was number two. I strongly suspect that he was number two because, you know, he's a Jew. But uh, maybe I'm wrong. Even to be number two at the big hospital, which I, I'll tell you again, was like the Hopkins, you know what I mean? So it was like the most advanced hospital of that era. But that's in addition to having all these VIP patients, because he also was the physician of the Sultan, and that means the Prime Minister and all their big shots and things like that. And that means that he, like his father, mastered the art of knowing how to get along with Yishmael. You understand? Not too uppity, not too obsequious, just right. You have to walk like a tightrope, and you know, you have to win their, uh, uh, what shall I say, affection, respect, but not be wimpy. Uh, you know, they have to respect. It's, it's just very interesting. He learned from his father the science of getting along with the Arabs, among other things. And that, of course, redounded to the benefit of the Jewish community. That's one of the reasons that the Jews during his time had it okay in Egypt, you know, because the head Jew is the head doctor and he knows how to prevent gezeros and things like that. This is not a small business, okay? And I would like to point out that at the time we're speaking, which is the Rambam died in 1204, I guess. So the son takes over uh, from his father in 1204, and he lives till like 1234, 1237, I think. So he, uh, the son was not, uh, let me put it this way, uh, this is just funny. The, Avram ben Rambam was born when the father, Rambam, was 51 years old. And Avram ben Rambam died at the age of 51. So just, you know, moved the years forward in the 1230s. So that means that if he took over at the age of 18, he ran the show in Egypt for next, uh, what, 30 years almost, something like that, right? Um, 20 to 51, and another two years, about 53 years. Uh, I'm sorry, 33 years. So 30-some years is a long time, okay? And that means he didn't die, uh, you know, I don't know what he died from at the age of 51. But uh, he was a macher during that period. So we're talking about the early 1200s. 1204 to 1235 or something like that, 1237. Uh, very interesting years because at that time, Egypt ruled Israel and Syria. This is the time of the Crusades. Saladin and the successors of Saladin, what they call the Ayyubids, the dynasty over there, and then later the Mamluks. So uh, this is a, just an interesting time. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is if he was able to be very diplomatic, often been around, I'm talking about now, and, you know, have the, the Muslim rulers uh, to show uh, tolerance towards the Jews, that not only affected the Jews in Egypt, but all through the Middle East, the, the whole area 
of Israel and, and Syria. Why am I making a big deal out of this? During this time, like in 1210, began the trickle, the constant trickle of Aliyah to Israel, to Palestine, by the Balitosis. This is a uh, well-known sort of business that most people, know. <laughs> it's well-known, but most people don't know about it. Little by little, the Balitosis were saying the, the situation in France is starting to really stink, which was true. And little by little, one by one, two by two, you find a whole bunch of them in the first half of the 1200s, between, let's say, 1200 and 1260 or so, 1270, uh, just getting out of France and moving to Palestine. And uh, you could do it because the government was uh, favorable to the Jews. And Amr ben Aram had a lot to do with that. So just off the top of my head, the Rajba, not the Rajba, the Rajba, Shimshu ben Avram Hassan's famous toast, which goes to mix Aliyah around 1210. Uh, so who's the main Jew in the Middle East at that time, as far as the government's concerned? Avram ben Aram. That's very interesting. I'll tell you why. Uh, the story of Amr ben Arama, and this guy could talk about for, I, I know I say it all the time, but really it's true. You know, Amr ben Arama could talk not only for six hours, but 60 hours. And even though it sounds like an exaggeration, and he would be the first to say it's an exaggeration, because he's very big on rhetoric and the language of Chazal, but he's an unbelievably interesting person, very little known, because a lot of the important stuff has only been discovered, as far as I'm aware, in the last 30, 40 years. So all the history books don't, aren't, aren't up to date. When I'm been around, as far as I'm as far as I'm aware, uh, now he's the son of the Rambam and all that, and you can imagine the type of person we're talking about based on what I told you until now. But there's a lot more to that. First of all, uh, as I mentioned, the Rajpa moving to uh, Palestine to Jerusalem during the time of Am Ben Rambam broke out the Maimonidean controversies, which means in France, especially Provence, southern France, that's when huge fights broke out over the Monavuchim. And other things the Rambam wrote, which these guys, uh, the Frumis, cons considered non from Now, m s some of the things you can totally hear. Uh, you know, like the Rambam says, he thinks Tchis uh, and is temporary. You know, you die, you come back, but then you die again, and then you stay dead. And that kind of, yeah, you, 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 there, there are definitely things the Rambam says, which you can understand people wouldn't agree with. Even today, they don't agree with it. You know, some of his explanation about the Carbonus and all that kind of business. However, uh, to say the Rama was not from, or an Apicurus, or something like that, or some of his ideas, are because it was going too far. And it was during the lifetime of Amben Rama that they burned in the 1220s, the books of the Rambam in, in France and Montpellier. I think I spoke about it a couple weeks ago, went to by Rabbeinu Yonah. And you can imagine how he reacted to it. So, the people in the first Maimonidean controversy in the early 1200s, when they started attacking and they formed two groups in France, in southern France, uh, the pro-Rambam and anti-Rambam, what they call in history, the anti-Maimonists and the pro-Maimonists. And each one dissed the other and wrote all kinds of books and letters and things like this. There's a whole literature on this that nobody knows about, a huge literature. I mean, things that people wrote in the 1200s, back and forth, for the Rambam, against the Rambam, and each side, you know, the right wing called the left wing Apicursum, the left wing called the right wing Apicursum, because if you don't understand things that are not literal, then you have a Hakshama, you have a physical description of God, and you're the Apicurus in the end. These things were, were, were bitterly uh, fought out uh, against. Uh, all I can tell you is that the uh, Avram ben Rambam weighed in by writing a whole book, not so, not a thick book, called Milchemes Hashem, in which he defends the Rambam, and he really disses the, the, the opposition. You know, you guys, because the Frumi said, God really does have a form. 
believe it or not, and God lives in heaven. I'm, I kid you not, you know, all the way up there, real high, like Jack of the Beanstalk, because that's the Gemara says, Chagig is beyond the Rakias and all that, and then there's a heavenly throne there, and maybe God doesn't have a goof like with a nose and an and, and a ear and a face, but he has, God is a, a being consisting of fire and, I don't know, things like that. And the Amben Ram say, you guys are nuts, you know, and uh, in a polite way, but a shtuchy way. And, uh, you know, he, let's put it this way, he's a big defender of the father. What's interesting to me is that some of the people who are critics of the Rambam, and I'll say it again, there's plenty to criticize in the murder of such places. There is. These are the very Bali Tosavos who rely on his protection with the Egyptian government to make Aliyah move to Jerusalem. The best one being the Rajbullah, the Shimshim Ben who disagreed with the Rambam on certain things, but in a very respectful way, not like the others. And uh, I, if I remember correctly, did he meet Am Ben Rambam or not? I can't recall. But that's just, if, if such a thing happened, that would have been quite an uh, interesting uh, conversation. Because uh, Rambam Ben Rambam was also a, a Rishon. Uh, I mean, no, he knew Kol Tarkul, you know, not like, like these other people. And so uh, if they would have met him, uh, you know, it's not necessarily what they imagined when they were attacking the Rambam back in uh, in France. So it lives through a very interesting period. This book, Milcham Hashem, I have somewhere in my library, was translated years ago. I think it's by the Feldheim or something, I guess, by Fred Rosner, but, you know, the guy used to translate all the uh, medical stuff, right? And uh, I don't remember who, maybe it was Feldheim or whatever, but you could get it if, if you're really interested in that sort of thing. Uh, and if you're a historian of my money controversy, which I'm sure you're not, if you get it from Sarachek's book, but uh, he was a full participant defending the father. Now, uh, the best example of the rational side, therefore, of Avram ben Rambam, and there certainly is a rational side, like his father, is in this amazing business, which has been censored now, and I'm referring to his essay at the beginning of the Ein Yaakov, meaning, not the Ein Yaakov, Ein Yaakov was written years later, but he, there's a, Avram ben Rambam, like his father the Rambam, was very interested in how do you deal with Agatha. Okay, that was a big issue at that time. Because Allah is Allah. You know, that's kind of cut and dried. And we can argue, over, we can do this on Shabbos, you can't do this on Shabbos. This is kosher, it's not kosher. It's a good get, it's not a good get. That's kind of dry arguments that everybody knows. Either bring a raya, you know, you argue in Talmudic fashion, or you don't. Argue, I mean that in the intellectual sense of argument. But when it gets to Agatha, that's a whole world. Is it literal? Is it not literal? Is exaggeration? Are the Chazal ever wrong? You hear what I said? Are the Chazal ever wrong? Or are they infallible? Uh, you know, if they say something that makes no sense, do you say, I have to just believe it anyway because I'm not firm if I don't believe them? So if they say one plus one equals three, you know, do I have to listen to that? After all, the Torah says, uh, you know, uh, what is this? Uh, uh, or is that only in the area of Halacha? And it's not in the area of Akaratah? So, these issues were raging in the uh, Jewish world among big scholars uh, in the 11, 12, and 1300s, particularly the 1200s. And uh, the trouble is the Hamun got involved. That's always the one. They should stick their nose out of this. Anyway, the point I'm trying to tell you, the listener, is this. If you're interested in what I'm talking about, then there's a famous essay that the Avram ben Aramam wrote in Arabic, which was translated into Hebrew, and published at the beginning of the older volumes at Ein Yaakov, the old-fashioned volumes at Ein Yaakov. And if you have, um, and it's a classic statement of an Avon ben Rambam and a Rambamian, a Maimonidean point of view, of how to deal 
with uh, Agatha in general, what to take literally, what not to take literally, what to take, what's the role of rhetoric in all this. The average person I'm talking doesn't even know what the word rhetoric means, you know. Rhetoric means do they ever use exaggeration, do they ever use uh, vivid imagery that they don't tend to make literally, or they tell you a story in the Gemara, but when the person says he's really describing something saw in a dream, you know, which is what he said has to do with all the shadim, these are all stories that somebody saw in a dream, because of course I haven't been around, I'm not going to believe in shadim, you know, things like that. And um, it's called Maimar al-Odos Drushes al-Hazal Avram and Arambam. Maimar al-Odos Drushes al-Hazal, an essay about Drushes al-Hazal. And uh, it says, Netak Miloshan Arbi Loshan Kodesh, translated from the Arabic to Hebrew. And uh, this is very controversial. Be- and, and it's published. If you have an old-fashioned, regular Ein Yaakov, then it's in there w- in the first volume, at the very beginning of the first volume, along with a couple of other famous uh, essays on uh, Agatha, one from the Ramchal, for example, one from Maritz Chayes, and people like that. Amen Aram is the, one of the more uh, uh, thought-provoking ones, let's put it that way. And in there, he goes, and you should, if you're capable to read this, then you should read it. I looked up a line, it is online, but it's, but there's a, the, the point I want to make is this, there's a, you can look up online, it says, Introduction to Agatha by Abraham, son of Maimonides, something like that, you see it in English. Not as good as the Hebrew, but it's seen in English. And it's originally written in, in Arabic, Judeo-Arabic. Um, there, one of the points he makes, not the only point, but one of the points he makes is that, you know, the Chazal are fallible in some areas. Maybe not in Awacha, but if they say something in science, they say something in medicine, uh, maybe even a Hashkaf idea here and there. Not necessarily true. That's very uh, interesting, very controversial. And remember, he's a front guy. And he's got a whole long business, and I remember that he points to the Gemara in uh, Psachim, you know, when uh, Tzadi Dalek, Tzadi Hay over there, where you talk about, what was it again, you know, does the sun go under the uh, Rekia or above the Rekia, you know, Chama Malechus Matam Rekia, is that how it goes, Malam Rekia, and the Chachmi Yisrael say one thing, I think the Chachmi Yisrael said that the Chama goes Lamatam in Rekia in the day, in the nighttime, I guess, and uh, the Chachmei Yisrael said, he goes, Lamalam and Rekia, and uh, in other words, there was an argument between the Jewish wise men and the Gaisha wise men, which would be the scientists, and they're arguing over, it, it, at face value, it seems they're arguing over a matter of astronomy, of physics, okay? And um, the Gemara says, uh, words to the effect that the Chachmei Yisrael say A, and the Chachmei Yisrael say B, I think the Chachmei Yisrael, if I remember correctly, said that uh, that the sun at nighttime, goes under the ground, under the ground, and Rebbe, Rebbe Hilanasi says, Niren Divreinu, they're right and we're wrong, uh, or at least it seems that way, Niren, uh, and I've been around, makes a whole point about this, Shabayom minus Soninim, right, or something like that, Belayla Roslin, I think that's how it goes, that it, uh, at, uh, that the water's hot in the springs, the well springs, uh, at night, so it must be that the, fi- the sun is going under them. Now, the science of it is not what interests Amben Aramam. What interests him very is like this. The Rabbi Yehuda Nasi would say like this. The Gaim are right and we're wrong on a matter of astronomy, a matter of science. The Gaim are right and we're wrong. So first of all, you see, he didn't claim to be infallible. It's Rabbi Nasi, the greatest of the time. And, uh, and he's going by empirical uh, observation. He said from the fact that the water is uh, warmer, seems like the sun passes underneath and warms up the water. Forget this from the modern point of view, I'm a scientific point. I'm talking about what the Gemara says over there. And um, and 
And Rabbi Anasi didn't say like this. It's unthinkable that the Greeks would be right and the Jews would be wrong. The Jews are always right, you know, like that. Because it's not avas and itzua. It's not like scoring points. You get it? It's not like scoring points. And we don't give anything to the guy. When they're right, they're right. When they're wrong, they're wrong. Particularly in matters of medicine and science and that sort of thing. Uh, and and I look at it, you'll see, it's interesting. And Avim and Aramam say like this. That's the real Kedusha. That's why they call Rehidonosi Rebbeinu HaKadosh. I'll tell you, look there, you'll see it. It's, it's amazing. The fact that somebody's willing to say, when you're right, you're right, even if it hurts my team, I'll call the truth, call a spade a spade, and, you know, admit the, 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 the truth of, because of the sake of its truth, that's called Kedusha, Rabbeinu HaKadosh. Now, the Gemara said they call him Rabbeinu HaKadosh because he never put his hands below his belly button or something like that. But this is what the Ram Ben Aram said. That's a classic statement over there. And by the way, it's a classic statement uh, if you're built that way, of the fallibility of the Chazal in matters of science and medicine and that kind of business. Now, in the late, ordinarily, this this has been this has been around forever, and people know about it. Those know it's it's not a hidden. In the last ten twenty years, because of Slifkin and all these fights that broke up last ten years ago, how long ago was it? You know, I don't know, last ten years, like fifteen years, twenty years. Uh, so all hell broke loose, and. Uh, and, and you know, Slifkin is always making a whole thing, if I remember correctly. I never really read his books, but, you know, that the Chazal are wrong about this and science and that thing, about the zoology and all the rest of it. And this, of course, provoked a whole controversy from the yeshivish. And uh, I think, if I remember correctly, you know, I just, I don't look at the blogs closely. But at that time, I looked a little more. But uh, not really. It's not, I don't find it so, in, you know, so uh, drawing. But... I'm sure he quoted from Ambin Arambam, and I think the other one's like this. It's not really true. And that uh, this uh, essay, uh, that's, that's something that Ambin Arambam didn't really write. You know, like that. And consequently, I am sure shooting that from now on, because of this Haredi, whatever, Slipkin fight, that if you, um, if you look around for new editions of the Enyakov or the or Avram ben Arambam's introduction to Agarita, you're not going to find it. And I'll tell you the truth, I went online now, and I hit up, you know, Avram ben Arambam, Maimral, Adrashis Chazal, which the words are online, and it's censored, it's not there. And uh, I'll bet you, I, I see the art school just put out the, 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 the uh, in Yaakov, I saw advertised over there. By the way, the art school published something of mine this past week. I did the translation of Megiris of Shiragon. It came out in this volume called Introduction to the Talmud, uh, which I was able to put in uh, something for my parents and my father-in-law um, in, in there. If you look at the Introduction to the Talmud, which which doesn't include, I think, I'm sure it doesn't have, I haven't been a Rambam, but it has the Rambam's Introduction to Mishnah, and particularly the Megiris of Shiragon, which is the classic, oldest, authoritative uh, history of the Talmud itself. But getting back to our subject, um, what you see over here is that um, I looked. I found it online, but it's censored. And I looked at the English also, it's censored. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe modern scholars have discovered the original manuscript and found that this is an interpolation. I'm not aware of that. But I can, I, I, I'll tell you something I do recall, which is if you look in the Archicope Sochem over there, where is this? Tzadi Dalit, Tzadi Hey, it's one of those pages over there, you know. In, the, in in that parak in in, in parak uh, uh, ches or tes parak tes of Sachem. Uh, it's either ninety four ninety five. Sadi dal sadi 
uh, you look over there, and I remember in the footnote they said that when Rabbi Yudhanasi says, you know, they're right and we're wrong, so I remember Rabbi Tom explains it this way, and someone else explains it this way, and they said, if you look at Avon Rambam, he says there's an example of Rabbi intellectual honesty. So the, the Siddharth scroll used the old, is this interesting, the old uh, uh, version that I'm quoting from, which is found in the old Ain Yaakov's. I'll bet you, you want to have fun, if you get the new art scroll in Yaakov, I assume that they just started with the brachos. I'm assuming that they put in the introduction there. Maybe they just totally skipped it because of the controversy that I'm raising over here. Uh, maybe just left it out. But if it's there, you'll have the censored version. But if you have the old-fashioned regular uh, Ain Yaakov's from Vilna, you know, from Eastern Europe, there they have the full uh, measure. And in general, it's a very nice essay. Uh, the Rambam didn't write it, but he, it's the kind of thing he would have written. He would have written. Now, having described that, I'm presenting somebody to you that's like a chip off the old block. He's like the Rambam, you know, round two. The Rambam lived and died, and his son was just like him. Okay? Just like him. And he was uh, he didn't write a Mishnah Torah, maybe, but he was a big doctor and very famous Tamakokam and a Posek and all the rest. He's like a chip off the old block. Now, here comes the funny part. It's not exactly so. Because... Um, recently, I would say in the last 40 years, something like that, uh, a lot of work in the Geniza and such places in Cairo has uh, really uh, introduced us to fascinating uh, material about the lifetime of Amin Rama and that whole Kufa and something called the Chassidim Mitzrayim. Chassidim Mitzrayim. I think you've heard of Chassidim Ashkenaz, which is from the Sefer uh, Chassidim and the Yehuda Chassid back in the 1200s. A parallel version to that was going on in Egypt, believe it or not. But in an Islamic fashion, just like the Hasidi Ashkenaz, uh, either influenced or were influenced by the Catholics around them, because in the Hasidi Ashkenaz you find a lot of references to uh, you know Christian uh, ghosts, and uh, also the whole business of penance, in which you flagellate yourself and that sort of thing. Which either they got it from us or we got it from them, one of the two. I'm talking about the Catholics now. Uh, it's just a fascinating subject. In the Islamic world, there was a uh, Hasidic movement, Hasidic Islamism, if I can use that term, they're called the Sufis. And these are people who uh, really emphasize uh, what, what, what some Jews knew about in Kabbalah called Chobos Halvavos. You know, that's a, the Sufi term. And, uh, you know, in other words, yes, you have to pay attention to the religious rules, but the Iker is the Ruchnias and the Avas Hashem, and how does one strive for Avas Hashem, and genuine Avas Hashem, and the great enemy of all religious experience, this is the Muslims talking, is rote. Well, Jews picked that up also. And Taka, the Yenachos you know, was written against this background in uh, in uh, Spain. People don't know this, but a lot of the things you find in Chos when he talks about the Chachamim, a Chacham said this, and a Chacham said that. Actually, it's Muslim guys, these Sufis, who were all engaged in a uh, grand quest to get more ruchnius out of the religious experience and to try to, I don't know how to put it, try to have a real kesher with the master of the universe. Literally, have a kesher. So basically, you're talking about some kind of nevuah type experience. Now, the Jews interpret it a Jewish way. But I'm just pointing out something very interesting. A lot of what we call the classic medieval philosophical and Muslim literature is influenced by the Islam, but claimed the other way around. It might be true. So, now to get to hard and fast. In the time of Amin Rambam in Egypt, the Hamunam was the Hamunam like everywhere. You know, 
Mrs. Anosh Malumodo wrote uh, a lot of things they didn't keep, as is in cl- case of classical traditionalism. And this is what you're dealing with if you're a rabbi on a regular basis. You know, you want people to keep be, be more scrupulous in keeping Shabbos, more scrupulous in keeping kashish Tarsh, Meshpacha, uh, avoiding the kind of petty, dumb sins that people do, uh, having upgrade in, like the Rambam, you know, Aser, the, uh, what did I say, the uh, Silent Shemun Estray, I mean, the the Chazar's the, shots because he's trying to get people to stop talking in Shul. You know, those kind of little things like that. Get people to do the Nigla stuff. But now I'm talking about Nister, and I don't mean Nister in the sense of the Zohar. I'm talking Nister in the sense of, here I am, me, myself, and I, and I know how to dive, and I know how to learn, and this, that, and the other. Do I feel that I'm, that I'm talking to God and God is talking to me? And more importantly, am I able to even pretend to hit levels like Avas Hashem? How do you do that? You know, how do you do that? First, you got to, you know, rid your mind of all paganism, which is that God is not a guy sitting up there with a long white beard, you know, that kind of thing. But then when you do that, you end up with, um, what shall I say, uh, you know, if you follow the, the, the strictly philosophical way, the Maimonidean way, God is unknowable. Uh, even the word unknowable is a creative word, you know, like that. So if he's unknowable, how do I how do I do that? How do I connect? So basically, who am I davening to? And when I'm davening, what kind of experience do I have? These are real questions that serious people take take for serious. And I'm talking about a thousand years ago and before. So this is what they call the Hasidim of yesteryear. You see? People really ask the question, what's davening all about? How do I connect... Uh, you know, with the Rabboni Shalom, if he's unknowable, I shouldn't say even he, and how do I, um, what's the right word, how do I um, uh, conceive of some way that I really move my heart to have Ava, Ava Hashem, Yeres Hashem, in the, in the sense of Yeres Aromim, you know, all these high and mighty uh, ideas. And, and Hi, I hope I didn't interrupt. Somebody just called me. Uh, hmm. um, I think I was talking about trying to get to Abbas Hashem and that kind of thing. And uh, how you do this. So it's not only a Jewish idea. And the, like I say, the best that the Muslims also have in their way, you know, the Havdol, you know, in their way, they're trying to do the same business. Because is, is life just a matter of, uh, you know, of learning and keeping uh, commandments? Or are you trying to, you know, know God? Uh, is that the, the peak experience? Do you want to have a mystical union, mystica, they call it, you know, a mystical union which you transcend your business and actually feel like you're touching something beyond you. Uh, these are lofty ideas. Look, in Judaism, what is there? I think it's a Pasuk Yeshayo, the God shall punish the people because the mitzvah is on Nashim you know, they do by rote. So rote is the great enemy of genuine religious experience. I'll say it again. Rote is the great enemy of genuine religious experience. We all know this. On the other hand, if there was no rote, if there was no, uh, you know, uh, form of how to carry the mitzvahs, people would do anything. And so, you know, he always has this problem. So we talk about Hasidim, these people trying to figure out ways, <laughs> trying to figure out ways to transcend the rote and get into something heavier. So let me put it this way. Suppose I told you that the only way to get into a, a, a better form of religious consciousness was by Karl Bach dancing or something like that. People do that. You understand? Now, am I going to make fun of them? It ain't me. But, you know, I hear if somebody's doing that, but on the other hand, uh, how do you know you're going the right derech? Maybe you're going some wrong derech. So these are questions that have to be uh, dealt with. Um, so, as, as I say before, the Jews were influenced by the Muslims. Muslims were influenced by the Jews. Now, I'm going to tell you something very interesting. In the time of Amben Arambam, there was a whole movement like this. 
certain shoals, it must have been shtibles, separated from the regular shoals. And there, these guys tried to be, if I can use the modern terminology, Hasidic. And since they wanted a more intense davening and a more uh, spiritual davening, just like the modern Hasidic movement. But it's not Eastern Europe we're talking about. We're talking about medieval Islam. So they're not going to have the kind of Hasidic dancing and, and Zemiros and that thing that they have in Eastern Europe. So you're going to have an Islamic kind of business, which is much more similar to the Sufi, the, the Islamic one. So what did they do in these shuls? Um, they ended up imitating a lot of junk from the Islam. So, for example, you do a lot of bowing, like you and I do in Yom Kippur, you know. They do a lot of that, which is what you get in the mosque. You understand? But they find that when you throw yourself on the ground, pick yourself up, it's more a greater intensity of emotion and uh, focus and you know meditation, that kind of business. They they go through elaborate washing, just like the Muslims did. Before Davani, you wash your hands, you wash your feet, uh, a whole kinds of business. And uh, swaying and uh, reciting um, certain poems, uh, a lot of meditation type of shtick, things that are totally foreign to you and I. Basically, what happened was that it was a developing in its own way in the 13th century, a Hasidic movement, like and unlike the Hasidic movement of the modern times in Eastern Europe, uh, but with the same goal, which is to get more uh, spirituality and ruchnius out of it, uh, you know, like a breast love or something like that. And I've been around him sympathize with this. He participated. So it's, it's weird. The son of Mr. Rationalism is a mystic. But the truth of the matter is, the genuine mysticism is founded on rationalism. You hear what I just said? The genuine mysticism is founded on rationalism. Because first you have to know what's baloney. Otherwise, any, any Tom, Dick, and Harry can persuade you, this is how you should dive, and this is what God was like, and that. First, you have to eliminate from your mind all the false images of God and heaven and that sort of thing. And then once you realize you're dealing with something that you can't know, then you have to practice the meditations kind of stuff and focus on getting into the unknowable. Now, it sounds like I'm just using a lot of words, and I have not experienced this, but I understand the general Mahalach. And one thing that's fascinating is that in the Muslim literature and then the medieval Jewish literature of this type, they're always talking about, a, 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 what's the right word, step-by-step, a stage. Uh, in other words, it's the kind of thing you find in the Masil Sharm in the 18th century. Masil Sharm is emerging out of this culture, but he's in Italy in a completely different way. Uh, but the idea, nevertheless, goes that first the art was Zihiris, and then Zrizis, and then the Kiyos, and you know, all this, uh, everything is a step on the way. So the Muslims did it their way. Avim and Rambam and these Hasidim and Sraim, Jewish guys who are very from Adraba, they're trying to get the real, uh, you know, this is what they, is the real uh, uh, Yiddish guy, as they see it. Uh, they had these, like I said before, I hate to use the word Karbach, meaning because that's a, the demeans it, but you know what, you get what I'm saying. Uh, uh, separate shuls, and they practice all this concept with the bowing and the, the other things and the humming and the meditation and all this kind of stuff. And um, it's all an attempt to uh, to to, to uh, touch at least scratch Avas Hashem Yerushem in the real sense. It's just very fascinating. But it's all done on the basis of first you do step A and then you do step B and do step C. They have their own their own list. It's not the Masilis Charms list, but it's, it's, it's its own list. Um, Masilis Charms list is from the Gemara, as you know. So this was a different list, and uh, the overlap what you find in the writings between one and the other is amazing. Now all this was really only noticed in the last 30, 40 years. You know, uh, professors and people like that that study all this kind of stuff in intensity have found rather remarkable things. And similar 
kinds of business was practiced by Abba ben Rambam's son, grandson, great-grandson, and great-grandson. So the family of Maimonides was not exactly Maimonidean, if you use the Western temple sense of the concept Maimonidean. It's just very, very interesting. Now watch this. What happened when the modern Hasidic movement arose? The Misnagdim arose against it, because Chodesh and Torah, and who knows what's going off the derech. That's exactly what happened in the time of Abba ben Rambam. The regular people in the Kehillah said this new group, including Abba ben Rambam, is like doing uh, things that are off the derech, maybe up at Korsish or something like this, and it's uh, and it's it's uh, opposed to Judaism. The same way the Misnagdim held, the Vilna Gaon, that what the Hasidim are doing is opposed to Judaism. And they went in and informed the government. They told him to the king. Can you believe it? Now, in the old literature, this was not a long time ago. The way I read it long ago, in the old historians, they said that Amben Arambam, when, when he was told by the government to stop this, he did, because he said, uh, nothing is worth a, mach, worth a machlokis. You're saying, nothing is worth a machlokis. If it tears the community apart, then we'll just let this go, because we can't have a civil war among the Jews, especially in Hashkafa matters. But more modern scholarship, if I understand it correctly, has said no. Amben Arambam um, replied to the government, and he said like this, listen closely, all this Sufism and all this Islamic um, intense religiosity and all that kind of stuff, they stole from the Jews. And I don't mean this simply in a rhetorical way. This is a fascinating subject. Uh, where did it all start? Like in Baghdad or something like that. That's where the Gaonic yeshivas were. The Gaonim and others, he says, were into this stuff. The Muslims stole it from us. You understand? And, uh, you know, at first you hear this, it sounds like just apologetics. But it might be true. And I'll tell you the reason I say it's true. The Gonim are very interesting. If you ever read their chuvas closely, especially in Hashkafa matters, there are books on this. Uh, they always write very rationalistically. The Gonim. Just take it from me. They always write very rationally. But here and there you see that they write to each other and they say like this. This is what we tell the Hamonam. You and I really... Behind closed doors, we act differently. We act, uh, if I can use the word, mystically. But that's not for the public. You understand? So they, which is the Talmudic way, right? The Talmud says that you don't do Maisebracious and Maisebracious with the public. We all know this. But with the Echidim, you do. And it could be that all these meditative things and these kind of business before, these enemies of road Judaism, go back to the, uh, the Gonim and even earlier. And um, it could very well be. The Amban Aram is right, and the Hasidim Israel are right. All these things we're talking about, they have a royal road, you know, and like I say, Hasidus leads to preachers, preachers leads to this, this leads to the road. Look at the Mesil Uh What's the last, uh, highest Madrega? You get like Ruch HaKodesh, isn't that right? Something like that? No, you, you hit Kedusha and the Ruch HaKodesh. You hit Nevuah. These people are interested in Nevuah. Nevuah means communicating or something like that, or so experiencing, you know, the, the divine uh, to the degree that a human can. can. That's the goal of old David, and that's the goal of old Yiddishkeit. That's the meaning of, to them, that's the meaning of Avaz Hashem. Now, everybody reads the Mesil Sisharim, but we all learn the Mesil Sisharim, but not many people get to the point of Baruch HaKodesh, you know. It's, it's good to read, it's, it's an ideal, but you know, you don't get there. These people were, were talking about getting there. Uh, I'll say it again, you find this already in the uh, in the Chobos Al-Babas, and there's a lot to talk about in this, but that time precludes. But, uh, uh, you know, it's it's a fascinating subject. And therefore, he never really did back off from this. He just low-keyed it. Low-keyed it. So it's kind of funny that the Rambam's son didn't uh, emerge in his uh, davening and you know, practice the way you would imagine.
Now, I have some friends who are Hasidic and Kabbalistic, and they say, you see, you know, the uh, Lithvish stuff was too, was, was, of the Rambam was a turn off to the sun, therefore the sun went Hasidic. It's not like that's oversimplistic, radically oversimplistic. The contrary, maybe the Rambam was like, I don't know about this specific stuff with the bowing and all the rest of it, but um, it's, it's uh, once you reach the point of rationalism, you reach, you understand that the purpose of rationalism in the best sense is negative. I mean this, meaning you burn out false ideas of God. But then that's not the positive. But then, so what is God? You understand? And if you simply say God is unknowable, which is not incorrect, where do you move from that? Or to use dumb language, after you finish reading the Homer Nebuchim, so how do you daven? But there's a mitzvah tefillah, the Rambam daven, shachros minicham and he daven with kavana. So how did the Rambam daven? You got my point? There's obviously a mysticism founded on the philosophical one. So in that particular regard, the Ramadan is fascinating. He wrote a whole book on this, uh, but only parts of it survive. But the best I can tell, the parts that survive are the Hasidic parts along the lines I just described. And this is a book they sell now. It's called Masmik Love the Hashem, which is, uh, uh, which is usually uh, translated as a guide for those who want to be over the Hashem, it's a it uh, originally it's a book several times the size of Moranavuchim, and it was written in Arabic. Here it is. It was written in Arabic, and uh, was wasn't translated for a long, long time, uh, not to the twentieth century. And the parts that and, and originally it had like a halacha part. It was like you know for it was meant to be like for hamonam, I guess, or so, I don't know, you know some some part. But uh, originally he he wrote it that has a lot of uh, halacha parts, apparently those parts have not survived. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why, and I might not be up on the latest of this, but, uh, but nevertheless, um, the, 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 the middle part, which was the, with the part I'm talking about over here, uh, about the Ruchnias and the road, royal road, that has survived. And that's been translated into English in the 1920s, before it was translated Hebrew. By Rabbi Impolner, Rabbi Rosenblatt, he used to be in the, in the um, he, Bethphala. He was an Arabic scholar, but he wrote in such a weird way. I saw it. <laughs> you, you can't understand the, what he's talking about, meaning it's too literal and, and it's a very wooden kind of translation. From a strictly scholarly perspective, it might be good. I don't know. But it, it's called Highways to Perfection. But recently, somebody from Yochan's Waikti Shiva, you know, translating English, and um, it's around now. It's called Master Globe de Hashem. It, it, it's around. And, uh, you know, it's published by, um, I think, Feldheim and all this. Uh, maybe it's called Highways to Perfection. I don't know. And uh, it's and now they came out with, with Manukot edition. Uh, the best edition I don't have. I have the regular one that you find in stores from Feldheim. There's a guy in Israel who was an Arabic scholar and professor. He put a lot of time into this. A Sephardi guy, uh, Donna or something, I guess, from Syria. And, you know, since I was thinking about it, I've been around him. Yesterday I wrote to a friend of mine. Bernie Lee Tavagan Israel said, can you get a hold of the uh, the good edition, which is published by Barilan? And he wrote to them, and Barilan said, Barilan Press, and said, no, we're all out of it, but it's about to be republished. And uh, that's the one you want to get, if you're at all interested in this, because he has a lot of the missing parts, and he has a better translation, frankly, of the Arabic than what you have until today. But having said that, um, I bought this for my show a couple years ago, and it's gone. And I mean that in the best sense. That there's certain guys I know. I won't say names. And, you know, not big learners or anything like that. But good guys. And they fell in love with the book. 
and uh, you know they took the one from the show and they made their own bought their own copies, all the rest of it. I forget what you call it in Hebrew. I'll tell you again. It's a, if you look on Feldheim, uh, you know they have you know as they translate in English. I once had an English, but Hamasi uh, Hashem, the servant was supplying uh, the, the the servants of the Lord or something like that, and that is his manual. That's what it is. His manual of how you uh, go from Madrega to Madrega, um, and uh, you know uh, for, for 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 the average uh, public person. So if you want to read a different type of Musar book, which is a little bit like the Chavos Lovis, but not exactly, um, then you will uh, go and, and look for this uh, for this title. Here it is. I just pulled it up. It's called the Guide to Serving the Guide to Serving God by Ravina Avram Ben Aramba. If you cover, that's by Feldheim, and uh, it's it's a different type of Musar book because it's really not Musar in the classic sense you think of Eastern European Musar. It's more like a literally a guide. How you go from this, you know, this quality to that quality, you gotta, you know, train your, you're not gonna be a Navi or anything like that at all, not for a million miles, if you still have, uh, you know, jealousy and pettiness and all that kind of stuff. You know, you got, you gotta work on, on getting rid of your bad traits and acquiring good traits. Uh, but it's like everything else. If you go after it, you'll get it. Now look how long I've gone on this. That's way too much. But I, this is the amazing, most unusual person that was made of Rambanaramo. This is why I say I think he's the least known. Uh, Rishon. Very fascinating. But I'm closing this down now.